Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today. I'm so happy to have Cole Swenson here in the studio with me. Welcome, Cole. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. <laughs> well, it's great to see you here in the on the blustery uh, Michigan day. Um, this is a taped program, the 28th of January, 2010. Um, Cole is in town uh, to read. You'll be reading at the, the University of Michigan Museum of Art today, yep. which is actually quite appropriate, given the, your great interest and intersection in in, in uh, yeah, art, working exactly. with art and language as, yeah. as a back and forth. Yeah, and very much interested in the visual art and writing off of visual art. And so that's to read ec- in ec- visual art really is really great. Cr- oh. <laughs> and that's the ecrastic yeah. art. Is a, yeah. uh, and, and some of your books have been centered, um, uh, like yeah, driven by much. this. I did um, one book in 2000 called Try, which is on religious art, mostly... Uh, 15th, 16th century or earlier. And then wow. another book actually that was um, uh, 2001 called Such Rich Hour that was on illuminated manuscripts. And then in 2000... Did, were you able to get um, color uh, like pieces in the book with the no. illuminated... Oh, no. Okay. No, but the nice thing about the internet these days is you have this companion all the time and all... And since most of us end up reading close to our computers anyway, the idea, and I'm thinking about how to make that work so that you can actually, just within a book of poetry or within any kind of book, tell your reader, go look up this image. And it was, that book was on a very famous book of ours called the Très Riche de la Duc de Berry. Oh, you're French. (laughs) So lovely. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And you can just tell the person, you know, go Google that image. And they have a fabulous reproduction. And so I think that's a really interesting way that books remain viable is that they interface so well with the, the other media. Yes, a, a new use for the footnote, yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yes, or, exactly. Or expanded endnotes right. where you could... Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So Stephanie that, Strickland, who has a, a URL in the center of one of her books. I've forgotten which the title of which one it is, but you're reading through the book and suddenly you open the page <laughs> and it's a URL. And so the So book then you go just, to it. Yeah. Then we, it's like the poetry like leaps off the page and goes into this other medium and then you can come back. That's so, pretty great. And yeah. so in your experience of reading that particular book, Cole, did you that did you pay attention and do that like oh, when it when it came to that so yeah. which is interesting because yeah. with books of poems it depends on who you talk with but but poets usually read from the beginning first page to the end because you know that there's this I- idea of do some they? organic well sometimes <laughs> i never do you know well see that's why i was going to ask yeah. you because that because then you don't know if if it's like a like in the organization of right, things, right, right. whether with, you're meant to with that book, have it, I knew it. what was coming, and so with that book, I did read it from the beginning okay. because because I knew that it was in the center, and it was very intentionally in the center of that book. It's tr- it actually come to think of it with more, and tell me if you think this is off base, of course, Cole, but maybe with more of our contemporary poetry in the last maybe fifty years or something. I'll just throw that out randomly, but then those books seem. When people started making their books of poems more, um, it seems like it, like they had to be more like a unifying principle, more clearly. Like you know, there was that trend with, where that became what, yeah, what publishers looked for. Yeah, but yeah. maybe before that, because I think it is a sense like with older poetry. No, it's not like that at all. Yeah, or like yeah. the the the, ver- the classics or the. No, they, but I you, think you don't I think read it. That I th- 
think you put your finger on something that's very distinctive about contemporary poetry is that we've gone from the model of the collection where a book was a collection of the poems that a given poet had written between the, oh, say for the last five years, which is still a completely viable and common model. But increasingly, we do see poets writing about a given theme or having a unifying principle that is exterior to the poetry itself, which I think is fascinating. I think it's... um, it, it changes the whole role of the eye in poetry. The eye is no longer uh, based in the writer, him or herself. Often that eye is someone who's observing or, or responding to the theme in some way. So I think it takes poetry away from the body and past, the hi- immediate history of the writer. Ooh, that's lovely. You'll have to think about Yeah, we can come th- back to that. that and talk. Yeah. And it's, it's, I always love when, when we... When, when the eye that comes up, because immediately, um, even though it's not on the page, you have because it's not on the page, you have that play with the sound of it right, of the right. the you and me of the eye or the the eye itself the of eyeball. vision. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the eyeball, <laughs> the eyeball of vision. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and so that that actually brings us to the the book that. Um, your latest uh, ours um, from the University of California Press um, is is a book that's unified um, with the idea of the garden. Yeah. And um, and would you like to tell us a? Well, I'll tell you what. Would you mind? I'll read your biography out of the back, yeah. and then maybe we can talk a little bit about ours. And I, I was so pleased. I love how it says "New California Poetry" too. It's like you can see their mission statement and um, friend of the show Robert Hass um, on the editorial board. Um, among many, many other wonderful folks, too. So um, let's see here. Um, Cole Swenson is the author of 11 previous books of poetry. 11. She's also a translator and has won the Penn USA Award in Literary Translation. Her poetry has won the Iowa Poetry Prize and the San Francisco State University Poetry Center Book Award. She teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Oh, we have so much to talk about, Cole, because to fill in your biography would take the hour, I think, in so many ways. Because to start with, on our walk over here, you you live um, between three places, the, the University of Iowa now, where you're, right. you're teaching Paris, right. um, which is like the... the the center uh, or the, the, the imaginative the center in a <laughs> yeah. certain sense, center of my imagination. Oh, is certainly there. <laughs> and Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C., well. which is in all three fabulous places and so different from each other. And I'm always wishing I could spend more time in each place. But I can't. I, you know, and I think when I was reading about you, there, there was a moment um, where you said, but I, and I've done this all my life. I've never been in one place completely right. for a stretch. Is that, is that still the whole Yeah, yeah, true? it's true. I, I grew up in one place, lived in the same house all my childhood, but then as soon as I moved away from my family at 18, I've always lived in more place, more than one place, and I've always had the feeling that it was inevitable or it was an accident and that it was really kind of inconvenient. <laughs> and then kind of 30 years later, I had to admit that 
it couldn't be an accident for an entire life, that there must be something I really like about the dynamic of shifting. It's a dramatic shift in, in perspective, uh, the shift in weather, as we were talking about. Your body goes through all these different things. Um, the distances get farther and farther. For a while, I split my life between San Francisco and Santa Cruz, for instance. Or There were times when I was in my 20s when it was simply um, shifting from San Francisco to Marin County, which is only you know an hour. Um, now it's <laughs> hours and hours and hours. Um, thanks and, to planes. Yeah, thanks, thanks <laughs> to planes, exactly. Um, but, but there is something really wonderful about feeling like you occupy more than one place at a time because obviously you kind of leave a bit of mental residue each place. And so my, my imaginary is always partially in D.C. and you know, partially in Paris and partially in Iowa City. So. What do you and so what do you think that does allow for if that's what's if that's what is happening with your mind? Yeah, um, I, I think it's the idea of having almost three simultaneous points of view that you're almost looking from three different perspectives at the same thing, which is kind of the general vague baggy it, but you're of you're our lives, at, <laughs> of our lives exactly <laughs> from these three points of view. And I'm, I, I also think it's as simple as I'm terribly claustrophobic and it, in, in usually more symbolic than physical ways, though physically too. Mm. And so there's something about that that is an absolute antidote to, um, to claustrophobia. So That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it does. And, and the other, you know, it's so inconvenient and you waste so much time on planes or whatever. Um, well, how are you the, using that time? Are you saying, I'll have another round, or are you actually <laughs> have a notebook? I, and, or? <laughs> I, I get a lot of work done. Okay. I definitely get a lot of work done. Um, but there's, there's the inevitable. There's nothing you can do with the time that you're standing in the security line. No, this is like totally nothing <laughs> it's, you can do. It's hard to have an imaginative yeah. life at that moment mm-hmm. sometimes. <laughs> you cannot be catching up on your class prep. But, uh, so I think with all, I always think with all the inconveniences, there must be something, even though I don't bother to trace it and articulate it to myself, there must be something I'm really getting out of it to, in order to. Yeah, something necessary. Yeah. Is there? Have you seen it actually take shape in um, a, a particular poem? Or is that something that's too abstract? You can't say, well, in, in this book, I could see it at work. Or, is it, must, no. or it seems more like a, a, I think a it's, solar it's much, headspace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's so it's in everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You don't recognize it because it's ubiquitous. Well, yeah. well, let's talk a little bit about ours then from the University of California Press. Um, could you tell us uh, about the, there's many layers of significance of the, the title, but I think it informs the, the, the project yeah, as a whole. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's based on a... On a um, a pun, really, because the book is about principally about André Le Nôtre, who was a gardener in the 17th century. He was Louis XIV's gardener. He was the gardener who designed Versailles. He worked a lot in the Tuileries. Uh, he was the son uh, and the grandson of royal gardeners, so for generations his family had been in the royal gardening business. Since the, the, the fall, I think right. is a line from the one of her poems. Right, it seems like, like <laughs> they go back to the fall. Um, and so his name is André Le Nôtre. He worked for aristocracy and royalty, and now almost all the um, gardens that he worked on are public property. There are public parks, or even if they're still in private hands, they're open to the public. And uh, yet his name, Le Nôtre, 
Translated means ours, O-U-R-S. So there's this lovely shift from private to public and then the idea that they're ours now. Um, so I, I just liked that pun. And then it has, a, it has a reverse pun quality in that the word O-U-R-S, ours in French, means bear. So all my French friends say, oh, you're writing about bears. So, like, no, 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 no. I'm writing about Andre Le Nôtre, and that's um, <laughs> that's the problem with having friends. Is like poets and art. The, right. the connections are everywhere. Yeah, no, yeah. not that one. Right, exactly. <laughs> not this one. Exactly. Oh. Well, Cole. Well, let's and maybe we'll hear a poem or, or so from ours when we come back. We'll take a short break. Okay. Um, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Cole Swenson. Um, we've got her latest collection of poems, ours, in front of us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. You've got you've got living writers here. I'm T. Hetzel. Welcome back, um, Cole Swenson here in the studio. Um, her latest collection of poems is called "Ours," and thanks to Brian Delaney here in the engineering seat. Thank you, Brian. And the crowd roars. <laughs> um, Cole, so. Um, 
we've got so many things to talk about, so we've got to fit them in somehow. Um, but let's, could we hear a, a poem yeah. first and, and start us off? Uh, I'm, I'm going to read a poem that is about, uh, André Lenotre designed many, many gardens in the Ile-de-France, so the, the central area around Paris. And I'm going to read a couple about that. And I was, we were just talking during the break about the idea of how to put history into poetry and the fact that that demands that you mix the language of information with language as art, and obviously poetry depends on using language as an art material, and history depends on using it as a conveyor of information. So I think there's always a collision between those two, and that the collision gives us a kind of tension that propels us forward. So I'm going to read two um, two poems. Uh, one is called Chantilly, and... Uh, it's Chantilly is a chateau with a huge grounds around it, about an hour north of Paris. And it was uh, owned by Louis XIV's brother for a long time. And it's somewhat the ascot of France in that it's the center of horse racing, the very fashionable horse races where everybody goes with their fancy hats in particular. And this is huge opening day at Chantilly is quite something. So this oh, tries what to, time period? Well, this? I was just going to oh, say, yes. this, okay. this actually kind of spans a few centuries, but the speaking voice in it is for the most part André Lenotre's, this gardener from the 17th, the 16th, 17th century. So he was born in 1613, died in 1700. Chantilly. The Prince de Condé every morning sent his horses. As Lenotre put it, Monsieur, never such an honor has and shall enslave myself, fountain and cascade. And much later, in a letter to the Count of Portland, superintendent of the Royal Gardens of England and ambassador to France, he wrote, and above all, Chantilly, dear kindness, dear Altesse, an endless canal, to see such a river fall in a single eye, such terrasse, was there young again among paths, and I your servant, and I your calipers, made them winners, from which windows the clouds, that one, for instance, the atomic structure of acres, and that one a thoroughbred racer and a dovecut, and all your stables full of ravens. We will, with our hats upon this sunny day, capsize in a storm, and with a horse under each arm, madame, have you the interlocking nature of even the smallest particles, neck and neck, around the final curve. It's so odd how horses in a dead gallop will nonetheless, at each step, bend their forward ankle slightly upward in a gesture so delicate that a teacup becomes a lampshade and the lamp a coral reef. So that that I think you can sense in there the problem of trying to get certain facts, what Lenotre said in his letters, in with just a sense of the gardens themselves, and and then beyond that the horses, sense, the, the actual horses, race, but that sense of language as a material, as a physical material that has sculptural qualities, that that will make us say. I always this is my hope is that we'll get to a point where. We don't care what it says. We're, we're interested in the sounds. We're swept away by the sculpture of the language. And so while this poem seems to have only cared about André Lenotre and only cared about this transition of public property into private and how land is sculpted, suddenly all of that makes no difference and it's completely wiped away in a sea of sound. And, and that 
so we go from an intellectual experience to one that is strictly visceral. And you never know. I'm always hoping. Yes. Oh. And that's, and, but that also um, uh, makes possible uh, then that your end, the end note goes to coral reef, which is something that is not on the race course. It has and no, it's not, nothing to do with the garden. It's, it's a type, it's a sea garden in a way, but, <laughs> but not it's got certainly. nothing to do with it. <laughs> not yeah. Andre's. Yeah. yeah. But it's exactly. there and, yeah. it, and it can be. And, yeah. and because of this possibility of sounds that you yeah, do yeah. it, perhaps, led this poet to it. I always think if it. you go in tiny increments away from a normative logic, you can get people to follow you for quite a distance, but you have to do it in small increments until suddenly mm. they're out on a coral reef, and this makes sense. Yes. But and it's the, the, the increment, is that something about keeping the trust uh, while you're, yeah, you're taking yeah. them away? Yeah. And, and asking them to follow a sequence that is not a logical sequence, but that has necess- has also has its own necessary, it is a necessary sequence, Connection. even though it's not a, a logical one. I see. And, and which demands an open-minded reader. Did, you know, I think more and more, well, I, it's always been true that poetry demands an active reader. And that came up in theory so much in the 80s and 90s, the theory of active readership. Um, but I think it's always been true that poetry has always demanded that the reader really take part in the construction of meaning, much more so than, say, a novel uh, where we imagine along. But with poetry, we have to construct the whole thing. Hmm. Within the framework, within yeah, the, yeah. the framework of that, um, yeah. So that's yeah. So this, this is another one um, called Saint Cloud, which is another chateau and garden right outside of Paris. And um, the what this tries to do is to get centuries of history expressed through kind of allusions to it. So that those are leaps then, centuries yeah. expressed. Yeah. So that's not as that's not it's incremental. Not but yet it's unified yeah. because somehow by this Well one I hope through the place. And I hope through the sense that what we're tracing here is the history of Saint Cloud. So Saint Cloud. If the ghosts lose who remembers on fire 13 October 1870 at the end of a forest, an ancient distance, in which Catherine de Medici is still winding her way over the Alps? Bought by her banker in the late 1500s, a mere village, who took an aster each afternoon and scratched in the lacquer, here lies aloft, a sister city, an outskirts by at jet, photographed 1924. Pale in shelter, the eyes have their houses incised, and to everything, its lightning rod and watershed, its parapet in rank advance. The king was invited to dine, and the king died. Which wandered from duchy to holy, which worship, which body as skidding, transparent through timing, grew a center much greater, and the fifteen fountains of Sanctus Cloadaldus, whose miracles still walk abroad, are now walking. O oh, history of shutters, a series of sightings in daylight. It was Henri Trois who, shocked in a mirror, ran into a man on the end of a knife, and it was here that the Comte de Sancerre began his long travels backward because a saint somewhere left a roller skate on the stairs. 
Here, where Napoleon Bonaparte staged his coup d'etat in an orangerie that Napoleon III destroyed some 50 years later to gain a view of several miles, and in between all these kings who search their pockets and look up asking, why am I dying? Thank you. So obviously, if you don't know the history of these various people, you're not going to find out very much about what happened. Uh, (laughs) But I'm not sure that what happened is what's important here. It's the sense of all this history uh, kind of impinging upon a single place. And so you've got the idea of time collapsing into a single point in space. And in a way, then that history also becomes ours, like this, these stories that are very private stories, right, that's like, true. like the gardens, then now with time, yes, they are ours. That history makes private stories public. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's really great. And, and so, it's, it's, so you're very interested in these intersections and these collisions. Yeah. I love that expression of, of what you're, you're doing. Is, yeah. that, is that at all connected? And, um, because in the back of the, the, the book, ours, your book, um, Cole, Ron Silliman, he had said um, that you're one of the finest uh, post-avant uh, poets that we now have. And what what does he do you know what he means when he says that what is he referring yeah, uh, to you know ron is one of the principal theorists for poetry these days and and his uh, blog is a very important intersection of ideas the ron silliman blogspot.com um every day he's theorizing talking about poetry and presenting uh, poet every day and wonderful day. he's an incredibly prolific so writer. so a theorist like garrison keeler is saying it like the daily poem on npr he's uh, bringing he's, us the, he's the theory and the deeper yeah, I was going to say, Ron's actually bringing us the poetry. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> um, and oh. he's developed the notion of the post-avant, uh, talking, you know, making reference to the avant-garde, and at the same time to the argument of, can we speak of the avant-garde today, or is that an historically rooted A situation yes. from, you know, the uh, 1900 to uh, the end of the Surrealists? And... So what do we have today in its place? There is still a way that the arts prefigure changes in thought and society and maybe can lead them, which was the principle of the avant-garde, was that you had your artists actually leading social change and using aesthetics as ethics to do so. And so Ron's still very interested in that idea and is trying to understand how that's operating today. So the idea of the post-avant is a nice pun that kind of talks to the impossibility of advance or progress in a social way, because you've got this after the before. Uh, So he's talking (laughs) about post-avant-garde in a sense, but that would be that would simplify the too much with post avant you've got this sense of you know one step forward one step back which is uh the the sort of course of human history but um wait but then but then it's because so then we're always nullified even though we're moving well i think (laughs) i think the fact that it's a very rich expression points out that we're not nullified in fact there there remains something even though this seems to be a contradiction in fact it's a multiplication Uh, thank goodness for poems and poets and thinkers of poetry (laughs) um yes and i could see from from hearing um the your last poem cole that you read the saint cloud is that how you say it saint cloud um 
uh, I could he- I could feel myself also being taken away by the sounds of the language. I could I could feel that element. Yeah, as you were saying it, you're, um, you're proving but, that but as there well. Also, is there is something about um, the the going back and forth between the languages. So, for instance, no yes. English speaker is going to look at that title and say Saint Cloud. They're going to say Saint Cloud, which is fabulous. I love Saint Cloud. Like it's really captures, particularly when we're talking about gardens, for all their beauty, are earthbound. And so to have the Saint Cloud <laughs> the up <sky>. there, <laughs> having this garden be named after you know a kind of animated cloud i think yeah that's that's really great (laughs) well it's wonderful and you discover these during the course of your research these moments that you're able to then um by by sculpting the the language on the page bring our attention to and uh, that is what one's always hoping is that the the sculpture on the page i always think that it's it's not a for me, at least, it's not a score for reading. It is, in fact, a visual object. It's not a score for reading. It's not a score for reading. It is a visual object on the page, and it should bring out the emphases. It should work toward, with the, the, uh, the meaning, to emphasize certain things, to change our rhythms, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and, and I, that's, I wish we could um, beam some of the, the pictures of the page out there um, along with our, our voices, Cole, um, because space... Um, it's very important, uh, as you're, you're just saying, on the, the page here and, the, and the, the line moments and how they're shifted across using the horizontal of the page as, as well as the vertical. And even, I wondered, is the shape of the book, how um, did you have a shape, uh, a say in the shape? Because the design, the, 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 the pages are longer. It's more of, um, yeah. it's more of a square than a, than a tall the rectangle University book. of California was wonderful to work with. And they, they started with the material and said, okay, what shape book do we need for this, for this work? Gosh, they were wonderful. That's the, yeah. that's the, the dream yeah. fit, isn't it? And the designer, I thought, just did a brilliant job. And uh, all of their books, um, there, Are, there's real attention to design. And since the whole thing is about design, uh, in a sense, so important. a good design. And I'm looking for the designer's name um, just to say, again, thank you. And I can't find it. She was fabulous and really fabulous to work with. Um, Nola, uh, Nola, Nola Berger. Berger. Okay. Nola Berger. Thank you, Nola. Yeah. And, uh, yes. And so let's... Because I was thinking on page 65 with those long lines. That's what I was wondering. Let's, let's take a short break, Cole. Um, yeah. Because we're, we're, we're at the, yeah, the, we're the at that break point. Board. So, <laughs> um, you're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Cole Swenson. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Cole Swenson. Um, we've been talking about her latest book from the University of California Press, Ours. Um, I hear we also have some new poems in the house, so we'll also we'll get to that before our hour is over, Cole. Um, but maybe a moment of talking about the research aspect of your projects, how you come to them. Um, because I, I, and I wondered... Because you said that it's uh, for the pursuit of history, it's important to get the information across. Um, and then for the pursuit of language and art and the poems, you you want the, the, the music of language and the, the art. Um, it's, yeah, it's in, and to say that, that those two are always, in a certain sense, in conflict, you can't do both, uh, or it's very difficult to do both. And in part because what, as soon as you start addressing information, the you the language has to be in service of the information. It becomes a vehicle, not a material. And and you feel that yeah, as you're working with it and in the language are scene. in the age of information. And so the, the role of information and its value, I think, has changed dramatically in the last 15, 20 years. And so while it seems to me that the rise we were observing earlier uh, the rise in poetry that is about themes. It's about uh, things exterior to the poet and his or her personal biography seems to be coincidental, seems to be maybe politically driven. I think, oh, is that actually also being very importantly driven by this shift in the general value of information in our culture? So not consciously, but seemingly accidentally, yet perhaps motivated by that, we find people interested in looking at expanded ways of conveying information. We've got huge industries and computers and information technology that is driving information in a certain way and to a certain end. And so poetry that's treating it very, very differently is in effect positing a different way of not only using information, but of constituting information. And well, and and in a poem, when and you're because you're doing this bulk of research, Cole. Do you have a contract that? Because I'm wondering about that balance um, with the with the reader if they are reading it and know this time period. That, for example, this um, uh, you did you say Louis XIV or, yeah. or uh, yeah. Louis the the Fourteenth or, right. or um, Louis Fourteenth? <laughs> um, so so when you've done, you've gone in and you've investigated this gardener Andre Le Notre and um, and and so you have this this pool of, of of fact and knowledge that you're working with. Um, so what are the parts that where you think well these are the moments that I must stay true to in the inclusion with the rhythm of the language of and some of these information and facts come in and then in other moments you're going to go to the coral reef but yet there's this this where where that tension between uh getting because okay because there's moments when i'm coming upon them i i some i was wondering at some points well is this one of the facts or right. is this is one this that true? cole has brought in right. um 
because he Louis Couture was gave granted Andre Le Nord, uh, the Nordre, the uh, uh, nobility. Right, right, and, and so absolutely true. That he, one's true. That's true. And so then, and then, then the next line that follows it, he picked three snails and a cabbage for Which his is crest. Also true. Okay, so these are things that, and so do yeah. you want that wondering, or or what does it allow yeah, for, yeah, or restrain, or do you feel like right. you have a contract with the it's, truth, or what? I, I do, and sense, what is truth? I mean, really, exactly, that would be exactly. You know, um, and but I hope the things that are invented that appear as facts. For instance, in the beginning, there's a. Uh, the first poem, there's an etymology of garden, which is completely, um, fa- you know, fanciful. The um, where is it? Um, the from the French garder to keep as well as to tend, gardien, guard bien, keep well, guard them within. Um, and of course, the etymology of garden has nothing to do with guard or anything like that. But I'm hoping that. That no one's going to fall for that one. That's going to be clearly that it follows that it's clearly it, fanciful. It, it, that in, clearly yeah. just a pun, and uh, and yet when you when you talk about the uh, facts such as Andre Lenotre taking three cabbages and a snail for his crest, that seems like it would be invented too because it's it's absurd. It's it's like yes. and yet that's actually true. Um, so. I don't want people to have to spend a lot of time wondering if what they're being told is true or not. I want it to be fairly evident whether it's fanciful or whether it's true. And yet there are going to be those moments where it's there's an inevitable fudge. And, you know, that... And why should okay it matter? To, right, Maybe. Right. Why yeah. should it matter it, in the, exactly. the language of the And the we talked a little bit um, before the show started about the Internet and the flexibility and the usefulness of the Internet. And, and the pitfalls. <laughs> and the pitfalls. And the pitfalls. Um, but the fact that if anybody's sufficiently interested, it takes two seconds to go Google it. And, and you find out, oh, Lenotra actually did take two cab- uh, three cabbages and a snail for his crest. Or, in fact, the etymology of garden has nothing to do with guarding. You know? Right. Um, also, in the beginning... But depending this, on what site, you, you whether you can depend upon that as your source true, as that's well. That's an excellent point. Um, and so the reader finally has to realize that all fact is invented. Yes. You know, if at the very, very truest, quote-unquote, it's a matter of selection. And... Even then, it's you know a matter of how it was phrased and the emphases that come out in phrasing and the you know history is written by the victor, etc. So um, we're always put back on that. I've also started including sometimes, um, and I did in this book, an introduction which lays yes. out the basic framework. So, and so that's that that's why you you did that yeah. to talk about. Like, please say more, Cole. Well, I I wanted simply to say uh, these are the facts that will help you get more out of this book. Uh, this is this is basically who I'm talking about. This is basically why I chose to talk about him. And uh, just, as I say, a kind of basic framing, a basic situating, so that the reader feels like he or she has, has a clue, has a start. And it includes, um, the introduction includes a very brief retelling of an important story of the garden Volivicon, which was owned by Nicolas Fouquet, who was um, Louis XIV's Minister of Finances. And it, the Volivicon was Andre Lenotte's first big kind of break in life, the first um, huge garden that he planned. And there's a wonderful story where... Um, it was unveiled, this fabulous chateau and garden, to the king and all his courtiers, and Nicolas Fouquet held this huge party, uh, and 
Louis Couture took one look at it and thought, wait a minute, how'd you get all this money to do this? You <laughs> Embezzler. Must be, you must be embezzling. And uh, like had him arrested three weeks later, threw him not, in jail. And, not funny. Not, not funny at all. It must have been really rather difficult. Um, and, and so that, that role of jealousy, um, the fact that a king, particularly Louis Couture, was not immune from being jealous of people and... For me, that really underscored, too, the, the hours. Whose is this? You know, and he usurped the garden, and he also took over the three people, the architect, the um, interior decorator, and gardener, who had built Fouquet's mansion and took them to Versailles and said, okay, build me something much, much bigger. So that idea of, who, you know, now you're mine. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, and and how how that works, and you know, with Louis Couture's, it was always mine, singular. Yes. You know, so how does that become plural? How does that? Um, does and, and then after and after telling this intriguing story, you're also then um, careful to say, yet yeah, you do not need to know this to read these I, poems. Yeah, was, yeah. You wanted you said that as as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always hope that in fact um, people could just enjoy the sound. So. Yes, well, I think I think they do, of course, with the um, the sound, um, with the with the research, Cole. Um, you mentioned that some of your new work that you you've brought with you is about ghosts. Yeah, and yeah. so is this now? Um, what component? Like, is it something that you just do naturally? The research, like you're going out, like what's interesting you next, and so it catches yeah. you, and you. Um, yeah. How do you pursue it? You, I, it's it's. It's true. It gives me a chance simply to delve into something that is is an interest, such as Andre Le Nôtre. I just got interested in. I can't remember why or how. I've always been very interested in gardens, and so the, the writing becomes this invitation to dump yourself into something thoroughly. And I find, and it was one of the reasons that I started working with what's called ekphrastic work, writing off of visual art. And I consider ours to be effectively ekphrastic mm-hmm. as well, because it a garden is a work of art. So to, to write in relation to gardens is definitely it. I'm also interested in the idea of, well, or is ekphrastic work a mode of writing that you know, a lens through which what you're looking at becomes art. I think that's mm-hmm. an important kind of twist that goes on too. Um, but and becomes you as well in the that's scene. That's true. The sort of suturing but between subject and subject. You know, the subject of the poem and the subject that is writing it. Um, and and so um, with the research, it just gives me a chance to get out of myself and into something that I'd I'd love to spend time working with. And and so. I never know where the ideas come from, but sooner or later, I'll think, oh, inevitably, this is what I'm writing about now. And it tends to become then a longer, almost like a, it becomes a, a book length in yeah. a way. It, yeah. That's the way that the work yeah. is coming. And since there's a convention of the book, which is 60 to 120 pages in our culture at the moment, that shapes the thought, but often... I'm I'm sort of sad when I've got my 120 pages. I think, oh, rats, I'd really like to delve more into this. And I actually did another book on gardens about 10, gosh, more than that, 20 years ago, um, 1991, um, called uh, Park. And it's about the Luxembourg Gardens. So then I come around to it 20 years later, so I don't have to give up these subjects entirely. Well, I love that. 
Take the fight to them, Cole Swenson. A <laughs> hundred pages, nah, much more, much more. Um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. La fille de joie est belle au coin de la rue là-bas. Elle a une clientèle qui lui remplit son bas. Quand son boulot s'achève, elle s'en va à son tour chercher un peu de rêve dans un bas du faubourg. Son homme est un artiste, c'est un drôle de petit gars, un accordéoniste qui sait jouer la java. La Java, mais elle ne la danse pas, elle ne regarde même pas la piste. Et ses yeux amoureux suivent le jeune herbe, et les doigts c'est qu'elle ont de l'artiste. Ça lui rentre dans la peau par là-bas, par non, elle a envie de chanter ses physiques. Tout son être étendu, son soufflet suspendu, c'est une œuvre étendue de la musique. de joie et triste au coin de la rue là-bas son accordéoniste il est parti soldat quand il reviendra de la guerre ils prendront une maison elle sera la caissière et lui sera le patron la vie sera belle ils seront de vrais pachas et tous les soirs pour elle il jouera la java elle écoute la java, elle fredonne tout bas, elle revoit son accordéoniste. Et ses yeux amoureux suivent le jeune herbe, et les doigts c'est qu'elle l'ont dans l'artiste. Ça lui rentre dans la peau par là-bas, par l'eau, elle a envie de pleurer ses physiques. Tout son être étendu, son soufflet suspendu, c'est une œuvre étendue de la musique. de joie et seule au coin de la rue là-bas les filles qui font la gueule les hommes n'en veulent pas et tant pis si elle crève son homme ne reviendra plus adieu tous les beaux rêves sa vie elle est foutue pourtant ses jambes tristes l'emmènent au boui-boui où il y a un autre artiste qui joue tout à Hello, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today, Cole Swenson. Um, thanks again to Brian Delaney, our engineer extraordinaire, and for picking these these songs. Uh, we just had Edith Piaf, was it, Brian? Hopefully, yes. Yeah, Cole was uh, Cole was enjoying it here, um, and hopefully, you at home or wherever you are on the road uh, listening, you enjoyed that too. Um, Cole Swenson. We've been talking about her her latest from the University of California Press. Um, just yes, such a nice publisher, such a nice press. Yeah, and such a great list. I, I really love the poets that they publish. It, they're I feel like so lucky to be among that list. It, it, really, you can always yeah. pick up one of their books and know it's going to be a really interesting poet. Because you're you're yes yes and um, yeah. and so we we're lucky and such and a lovely aesthetic that that informs yeah. it as well and. Um, uh, but so your last book was with I think Alice James, and then the book prior again was University of California Press. So you like? No, or, this, or this is the first University. Oh, this of California. is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Iowa did three. <gasps> ah, that's what yeah. I was thinking of. And so, well, that that leads us to the the many hats of Cole Swenson. Um, 
literally and but figuratively um that that you so you teach at the university of iowa now you're 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 on the the, the permanent staff teaching staff there cool and then you also um you you edit journals and and you've done and and you're a translator let's talk about these hats well it's it's um the editing is a really fun project um i do a i think of it as a nano press because it's much smaller than a small press i only do (laughs) i only do two books a year and there are years when it's really only one um we're a subset of fence books which um, allows us a kind of entry into a conversation it helps people recognize the sort of people that might be interested in our books. I like to think that the people who would like a fence book will like a law press book. Um, the only thing we publish is French contemporary poetry uh, translated by English language poets, um, not myself. Uh, I say we because I do it somewhat in conjunction. Basically, it's just moi who does it. But um, <laughs> I could never do it without my next-door neighbor, Sherry DeGraw, who's a fabulous type designer, book designer, um, graphics person. And we do. she has two children, so we work do all the work after the children are asleep. So it's all done about 11 o'clock at night. A cottage and, industry yeah, press. In Iowa City where it, it'll be snowing outside and there we are side by side with the computer. But she's just brilliant. She's responsible for all the aesthetics of the project, which I think are so important. A book has to reach out across a bookstore and grab you. Um, all the people that we publish are living and they're all working in... And what does it mean to say experimental forms? Um, but they're all people who are very consciously working with form, trying to use form in a kind of muscled way. And people who are really trying to expand notions of language and what language is doing. And, of course, translation is always right in the middle of that problem. You know, what... How is language limited? Well, one of the limits of language is encountered all the time in translation. And so the translators that translate the work we publish are all people who are also thinking along those lines. They're thinking very theoretically about language. They're, they're, uh, well, that's, you, you qualified it by saying English language poets themselves. So yeah, they're poets. Yeah. And I don't, um, I, I believe that translating is writing. There's this notion that, hmm, do you need to be a writer to be a good translator? If you're a translator, you are a writer. Because while you might translate out of, say, French or German or whatever, you have to write it into English or whatever is what's called the target language. And if you're not writing, if you're translating it into the target language, it's going to sound like wood and it's not going to work. So all translators are writers. That said, I particularly enjoy the conversation of poet to poet that occurs when two living translator and poet are working together. And if the poets and the, the, if the two poets have somewhat of the same aesthetic or somewhat of the same aesthetic questions, the rich kind of conversation that they have shows up in the quality of the, the final book. And, and when did you, so that's Le Press. Yeah, You're, so which you edit? We have five books out so far, and a sixth coming out. I hope next month. So. Oh, wonderful! Well, let yeah. let me know, Cole, yeah, and so we can tell yeah. tell the listeners as well. And um, but when did you start? When when did you start translating? And 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 you chose French as your and. Uh, 
Yeah. When did you start working, and why I, did you choose to do I, it? I started translating in the uh, early 90s. I started going to France um, two to six months of the year in 87, and have done so every year since. And of course, I wanted to get to know French poetry much better. And in the first, when I first went in '87, I spoke virtually no French, and so working on French was a major part of my project. But um, I realized at a certain point to read the poetry that I was interested in, I effectively had to translate it in order to read it. I just had to spend that kind of interior time with it. So I was kind of translating for years before I published anything because. They were fairly disastrous as translations. But as I got to know French better and got to know the poetry more from the inside, I began to feel like it was appropriate to maybe try and publish some of it. And I also, I only work with people who are living. And it's not so much a principle, but I just really enjoy the conversation and I enjoy the poetics of that kind of conversation. It has the flip side the, be- the sort of hidden benefit of you're corrected if you're if you're making some grievous error, the poet is likely to say, "Ah, oh, that's really not what I meant." So, um, I find that that, and I immediately, you know, several absolutely outrageous errors come to mind that that were corrected only because I was, you know, working with a living person who said, oh, "No, that's well, not could it." Could you give us an example of well, that, Cole? The, then one. Um, it's probably the funniest. Um, Olivia Cario's um, book, Art Poetique, which is art poetic, published by um, Green Integer Press in um, oh, a few years ago. Nice press. And, yeah, really great press. And the word for sen, the word for breast, a woman's breast, and um, sen uh, is his or hers, um, are, are very close. It's a transposition of the E and the I, S-E-I-N-E-I. S-E-I, and, and um, I translated it as breast. And um, it, it was something like um, putting his or hers into the ground. It was like bury. It, it was an allusion to burying your your loved ones or something. <laughs> I was like, why why is she putting her breast in the ground? But okay, that Olivier, he's really you know. So <laughs> there I had. It's like she's putting her breast in the ground, and he said, uh, it's not quite that. Is it? So, was it the heart? Was it yeah, meant to yeah, be the heart? No, it's meant <laughs> or, to be his or hers, meaning his close people. Burying oh. the bodies of his ancestors. Oh, the, who is, oh I see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for catching that, Olivier. So and so, so and that's when and and so are there any moments where? Well, I guess you wouldn't say. Well, I feel like I know better than the poet who actually wrote the original poem. But that that would be one of those ones that you'd be very grateful for. But do any conversations ever arise with because of how? Um, because when you're trying to say, well, I'm choosing this particular English word or phrase because of the 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 historical or the interior meanings of oh, the yeah. word or the yeah. connotations, and and then so you're having that conversation with the the other yeah. the poet, and it's interesting to try, and I have no problem changing things, and and actually with the original writer's permission, changing sense in order to capture some sound because. We always sacrifice sound because the important thing is the, the meaning of the... <laughs> and it's really a, a bias against the aesthetic in our culture that the quantifiable, which is the sense, that's what's important. And the non-quantifiable, which is the aesthetic, is not. Um, so the, the, so the, could, you, could you say that again just a little? The, yeah, oh, I'm uh, sorry, the, cool. that it seems to me that 
that our bias against toward sense, which is a bias against sound in translation, is actually reveals a, a mistrust of the aesthetic, that we only trust the quantifiable. If we instead choose to angle toward and keep the sound, we feel like we are transgressing, because that is not only not important, but it's not... A, it's not where the value lies. The value lies in the quantifiable, the exchangeable, the information level of that language, not in its the immediate experience of the, the sensual presence of the language. I, I wondered if that's what drew you to the the translation, uh, like the, like the the leaping into the French language. Um, because of your interest in, in in almost keeping the sound prime in yes, the though, actually, what got me into French was Gerard Nerval, a 19th century just writer I wanted to read, but also the the proximity of the poetics, contemporary French and American, which I discovered in part, you mentioned Paul Auster and his 20th century, the Random House Book of 20th Century Poetry. That was a very, I love that book, and it... it um, kind of convinced me that the questions that 20th century French poetry had were the questions that I had. Um, and part of it was just my my training, you know, this, where I went to school and who was teaching me and, you know, pointing a, a lifetime of this is what's important. And, um, and so, so translation has become a, an important part of the generation, like it informs your own work. Oh, and you found that, yeah, that happened definitely, almost definitely. right away. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so well, much. Well, thank you. It's been a really fun conversation. Well, really it, nice to talk to you. It's been great. I've really enjoyed yeah. talking with you. Um, thanks for coming and and for coming to Michigan yeah. in the cold January. Um, it's compared to Iowa, almost tropical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that we'll take some solace in that. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Cole Swenson. Um, we've been hearing some poems from her, her latest collection from the University of California Press, ours. Thanks again to Brian Delaney. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.